Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. We are here because we are attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Say it with me again. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that's the finish to that sentence. I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like by the end of the year, aren't you? Aren't you? Okay, just, just making sure. Stand and I want us to uh, pray the prayer that's on that sheet together and then we're going to sing some. Let's pray together. God of grace, you have given us minds to know you, hearts to love you, and voices to sing your praise. Fill us with your spirit that we may celebrate your glory and worship you in spirit and truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You have your Bibles? Let's open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Mike. Did you flip it? Ephesians chapter 4. Going to be reading verses 1, 7, and 13. I'm using the uh, New International Version. If you're using something else, it'll still make sense. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I want to read that again using, uh, using another word for apportioned. But to each of us, Grace has been given as Christ measured it. Then verse 13, the one we're so familiar with already. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. My theme this evening, the full measure of his grace. Father, your word, you inspired its writing, you guarded its transmission, you guided its translation, you are in it as we read, and I pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would inspire it again to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening. Uh, I, I usually get to preach relatively early in the school year. Uh, that's because when you're the dean, you get to say those kind of things. And so he always asks me right off, you want to preach early? And I say, you bet. Uh, the preaching is a, is, a, is a wonderful privilege. And uh, I count it a privilege and uh, wish to do so. At the beginning of any sermon, you're supposed to say something cute and funny. Uh, but really, they, they've, they've, they've discovered that uh, 
that people who listen to any kind of public address make up their mind in about the first 60 to 90 seconds whether they're going to listen to you or not. So the idea is to say something that is just, just, so, just so special, just so right that it, that it puts everyone on the, on the edge of their seats. They know what's coming next and they can hardly wait for it. And I couldn't think of anything, so I just decided not to do that part. <laughs> but, but I do want to tell you that I like epigrams and aphorisms. Do you like epigrams and aphorism? I'm, I don't even have false teeth and I'm having trouble. <laughs> epigrams and aphorisms. You, you might like them if you knew what they were, right? Well, here's your English uh, lesson for tonight. An epigram uh, is a, a short, terse poem or statement with a, uh, with, a, with, a, with a lot of wit, a lot of wisdom, and usually a little twist at the end. Uh, you want an example? Okay, how about this one? Uh, from Benjamin Franklin. Little strokes fell big oaks. Oh, I can, I can, I can, this, is, this is getting to you, I like it. Uh, from the book, that was Benjamin Franklin. Here's one from the book of Stulting. Hush, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. Is that, is that, is that a little bit better? That, that's, that's an example of, a, of an epigram. Now an aphorism is, is somewhat close to that. An aphorism is usually a, a terse statement that gives conventional wisdom in very short order. Um, for example, one man's tr trash is another man's treasure. Yeah, we'll see. Conventional wisdom, short statement. Um, Benjamin Franklin gave an aphorism, and this is the one I want to pause at for just a little while. We'll come back to it later. God helps those who... God helps those who help themselves. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. We're, we're, we're talking about grace. The theme that uh, that Chaplain Like told me about at the very beginning of the year, I, I became so excited about it because it's so powerful. Um, bit of history. Uh, my earliest recollection of church was in a small church sitting beside my Mennonite grandfather. It was not a Mennonite church. There was no Mennonite church there, so he went to another church, and he sat on the front row. Uh, that that shows that he didn't really belong to that particular church, but he uh, but he sat on the front row and and he sang bass. I, I, I just love to hear his, his, him sing bass. So much so that all the rest of my life I practiced until I finally got bass down pretty well. My real voice is up here. <laughs> but, uh, but I wanted to be like my grandpa so I, so I learned to sing, sing bass anyway. And uh, it, his, his voice was so beautiful. He, he, uh, he was a, what is called Russian Mennonite, and his first language was Plaj Dutch, which is a mixture of, of, uh, of Dutch and German and uh, Polish and Russian and a few other things thrown together. And, and when he would pray the Lord's Prayer, for example, he would say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> 
and it was like music to me. I can still remember it. It was so clear that anyone who could pray like that must, must know God in all his power and reverence, and it has, it has set a real pace for me. Uh, my parents, on the other hand, uh, were invited to another little church and where they found the Lord Jesus, their personal Savior, and it was in that church that I was saved when I was eight years old. And uh, I didn't step foot inside a Nazarene church for a church service until I was 20 years old. And on the very first occasion, I was at home. And I've been at home ever since. I, this is, I, as I've told people, when I, when I look out and see Nazarene people in a small church or a big church or wherever, I say, those are my people. Those are my folks. I have cast my lot with them and they have taken me in. But it wasn't just, it wasn't just an ethos thing. It was, a, it was really a deep doctrinal sort of thing. Because what captured me from the very beginning was this idea that God's intention in saving us, catch this if you will, God's intention in saving us was to make us like him. What a wonderful thought that was. And it wasn't that other churches didn't say that, but they didn't say it with the kind of clarity or the kind of winsomeness that I heard when I went to a Nazarene church. Now, for those of you who are not Nazarenes, that's, that's fine. You go to a great church, I'm sure about it. But I want to brag on my own church for a little bit here. Because Nazarene folks, Nazarene folks not only said it matters to God how you live, they said it is the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest peace that is possible to know. To let God work in you to make you like Jesus. So when Chaplain likes said this one now, that the whole idea of this year in chapel is for us to talk about what it means to attain the full, or the measure of the fullness of Christ. What a wonderful thing. So I said, oh, I get to preach a third in this whole series, so here we go. I started with the first verse of the first chapter of, of Ephesians and started reading all the way through that. And I found out the whole book was like that. The whole book said the same thing. That what God was doing among his people was moving them more and more and more to be like Jesus. So whatever redemption meant in Paul's writing when he was writing to the Ephesians, it was this, that God began something in you that he intends to finish by making you like Jesus. And I said, that's wonderful, that's great. So I said, okay, where does it begin? If the proper end of the Christian life is the fullness of Christ. Then where do we begin? And so I start with the fourth chapter and I began reading it and I found out that everything he talks about could be encapsulated with the idea of grace. Grace is where we begin. So let me suggest to you very quickly, uh, where's my wife? Ten minutes from right now. You got to gotta watch? Ten minutes from right now. Here we go. I'm going to talk to you about what it means to have the fullness of Christ. Interestingly enough, this word, this word measure crops up three times in a, in a relatively short span of verses. In the third chapter, he talks about the measure of God to end up being in true holiness. And then in uh, the fourth chapter, the seventh verse, he says, 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ measured it. And then in verse 13, that we're to attain to the fullness or the measure of the fullness of Christ. So what does the word measure mean and what does it mean to have a measure, the full measure of his grace? First of all, we need to note that this is exactly what God has called us to. I know that in a room like this, many, many of us have talked about, from time to time, have talked about what it meant to have God's calling in our lives. And we usually mean some calling to Christian ministry. And that's right and well and good. But that's not how it is intended here. This is a statement of God's general calling to people to become his children. What Paul says when he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He was saying, you have been called to be a Christian. You have been called to be a child of God. You have been called to put on his life. Therefore, live the life worthy of that. Now in this, it comes down to grace being thought of in three different ways. So here they are. Grace number one is the, is the grace that is talked about in historical settings as an experience of grace. God's grace has that aspect which is a miraculous event that is time specific in the life of a person. It is used to describe that moment when someone finds Jesus Christ as personal Savior and pass from death to life. They put off the old man and put on the new man. They become a new creature. Their sins are forgiven. They are made eternal creatures with eternal life. When that happens, it is an experience of grace. It is something that cannot be done by any human power at all. It is totally in his hands. The only thing we can do is receive it. It is an experience of grace. It is also used by many, many holiness writers to talk about what happens when someone is sanctified holy. It is a crisis experience. It happens just like that. It is wrought miraculously. You are one sort of person before that moment, you're another sort of person after that moment. That is an experience of grace. It is something that especially was written about by the, by the early evangelicals. John Wesley being one of them. Who insisted that whatever it meant to become a child of God, it was, there was an experience of grace involved in it. Even though he may not always have used those words, the meaning is quite clear. There was that moment for him which was the warming of his heart when he did believe. And from that moment on he counted that as his conversion experience. This pattern repeats itself. There are ways in which we cannot attain to the, the fullness of Christ unless he does it in us in some miraculous ways. And I'm glad for those. So throughout our lives there are other times when we come face on to a brick wall that is too high to climb and in some wonderful, wonderful way he lifts us and carries us and transports us to where we cannot be without his divine empowering touch. I'm glad for that. The second way that the word grace is used, it is used as Christ's provision for us. It says in verse 7, 
this grace is given in, in the way that Christ has measured it out. Um, the word measure is used often in Scripture to indicate something that is full and complete and is everything you need. Another place in 2 Corinthians where it talks about the, the sufficiency of God's grace is that it, the measure is there. It's everything you need. There is no lack of it. Jesus is not skimpy when he passes out the grace. And that's the way it's used. Whatever you need to attain the fullness of Christ, it's there. It may not always feel like it. If you put too much in your feelings, you're in trouble. It may not feel like it, but it is there. And you can rely on it. There have been times when I've been in the midst of trouble or looking ahead at trouble, which is, which is really a strange thing. Uh, to look ahead at trouble means it hasn't come yet, but you're going to help it along if you can. <laughs> but in the midst of trouble, I felt like there was no answer. But every time it was passed and I looked back, I could say, yeah, God had it all figured out all the time. All the time, he had it figured out. There was grace aplenty because we received grace the way Jesus measured it out. And he measures, he measures very liberally. Always sufficient. This sort of grace, however, is the grace of circumstances often. I told you we'd come back to uh, Benjamin Franklin's little statement about uh, God helps those that helps himself. I heard a preacher once say that that statement is false. And I said, what? <laughs> Benjamin Franklin could say something false? <laughs> and he said, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. Grace is not about us helping ourselves. Grace is about God helping us when we can't help ourselves. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good preaching. Pretty good preaching. Until I began reading here again. And I said, you know what? It's not either or. It's both and. God does give grace to us and helps us when we cannot help ourselves. But he also works his grace to help us when we can help ourselves. Where in Scripture does it ever say that God will do for us what we can do for ourselves? I mean, it may be there. Help me see it. My assumption is the way God does it is he also, in the circumstances of life, in the environment of grace that he creates around his people, he says, I'm going to put you in the middle of it, and I'm going to help you do this. Because the third way that he helps us is by personal discipline and the exercise of our will. I read this and I said, now hold on here. Paul said, I beseech you. That's, that's King James. Um, I urge you. I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. Now that doesn't sound like grace. He was saying, I'm asking you to make the decision, to nail it down, to write it in big letters, to paint it in brightest colors. That you have made your decision to follow Jesus and now exercise your will and your discipline and do it. Now it's not either or. It's both and. He does help us when we're helpless. But he also helps us when we help ourselves. When we make the decision to follow him. This is grace nonetheless. It is that kind of grace 
It is a grace that is poured out by him because in the midst of life, there are people who will walk along beside you and put their arms around you and say, brother, sister, how are things today? And you say, oh, not too good today. It's been a hard week. And they look at you and the first thing they say is, I'm praying for you. Isn't that grace? That God would surround us with people like that? What a wonderful grace that is. Or they'll give us some advice. Or they'll share a scripture verse with us. They might even quote Ben Franklin, who wasn't a Christian, by the way. But in all of this, it is God's lavishing out grace on us to make it. But none of it happens until we say yes, until we make the decision, until we stick with it and let his grace fulfill itself in us. And that measure grows and grows and grows and we are like him. So, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God said to Paul in the midst of his troubles, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, God's strength, is made perfect in weakness. As near as I can tell, if you like, if you like dividing people up into various categories, uh, there are Christians and non-Christians. But all the Christians are of only one sort, and that's weak Christians. Uh, the interesting thing is that there are weak Christians who think they're strong, and there are weak Christians who think they're weak. The amazing thing is that it's the weak Christians who think they're weak that are really strong. It's the weak Christians that think they're strong that are weak. I got that right if you want to check the tape later. <laughs> there is something about coming to him and say, I can't do it on my own. I'll do my best. I'll try my hardest. But I know that you won't reward me by in merit by doing what I can you will always reward me by your grace and your grace alone but I'm also convinced that you will help me be you will help me be what you have called me to be for you see the fullness of Christ is the standard that he himself has set for us by living his life before us that's the measure he has measured out. He has said, God has said, Jesus is the goal. Move that way. It's not, it's not his purpose just to trick us into one moment of, so he can born, make us be born again. That's not the issue. I'm stammering here a little bit. That's not his purpose. His purpose is for us to be born again so he can move us toward the likeness of Christ so that we can shine out to a lost world an unbelievably miraculous life. Not because we did it, but because he through his grace did it for us. Would you stand with me? I want to pray. And then we're going to sing. Father, we talk about grace so much, we read about it so much, we sing about it so much. What we really want to do is to live in it. So that the very standard that you have raised before us by the life of Christ himself would become real. Not just in our vision, but in our living. So that who we are brings glory to you 
and results in your kingdom being built that would grow and prosper and that uh, eternity would be full of people who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior because of what you do through us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Swallowed wrong time. <coughs> the reason that uh, I preach shorter is I want to read the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And I want to add another verse to it and I'll tell you how it goes. This is from the third chapter. It's the verses, <coughs> the verses right before where I began preaching. Paul prayed this, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now that's where we usually stop. But if you go to the fourth chapter, he was talking to them. He said, you, you did not come to know Christ in a wrong way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness and thereby to attain the measure of the fullness of Christ. God bless you. You are dismissed. <clears throat>